exactly about 30 seconds before I was to preach at a particular church, I couldn't find my Bible. I'd been talking to somebody and put it down someplace and sermon was inside the Bible and trying to maintain some level of decorum and composure while sweat was pouring down. Where's my Bible? Fortunately, I found it, so that was good. It's good. We want you to have a Bible. I'm in Exodus chapter 5, sort of, kind of. You've heard pastors say, preachers say from time to time that this particular text that I'm approaching, really, there could be five or six sermons right in that one. It's never been more true for me than looking over these chapters 3, 4, 5, and 6 of the book of Exodus and saying, okay, how are we going to do pretty much what we're doing, which is a flyover of the book of Exodus, say in about 10 weeks or so, and then skip over some of these things. It's, it's really a, a challenge, but um, I'm going to pick out what I believe the Lord is directing today in the title that I've already brought to you already, Disappointment Stinks. Now there's a reason for that, and hopefully in the unfolding of this, you will see that that title is actually ex exegetically driven. It's in the text that we're going to take a look at this morning. Disappointment comes in a variety of uh, packages. You can be disappointed that the ball game got rained out. You can be disappointed that you didn't get the promotion that you thought was coming your way. You can be disappointed that God has said, no children for you. You can be disappointed at the loss of a loved one. Can you see how those kind of change your attitude as you go through? Maybe for many of you, more intense as it, as it goes through. Disappointment comes in a variety of packages and um, here in this passage of scripture I want you to see where this comes from before I do I want to remind you kind of the framework that I'm working off of and that framework that I've described to you is um, is a framework of interpreting narrative scripture now that sounds rather academic so said a different way how do we get what God wants us to get out of the biblical story? There's a story in the Bible. There's a story that goes from Genesis to Revelation. We can find that story. It's called by different names, the progress of redemption, God's redemptive story, his story to redeem his people. Uh, sometimes we academicians can call it the narrative or the story of the Bible. And when you come to those places in the Bible that seem like story, well, we're here in Exodus, but we've mentioned Genesis before. That's a story, isn't it? We get to books like, uh, I think right now, of 1 Samuel. You know, the life of David and the life of the king. It's primarily story. It's not like New Testament books like uh, Paul's epistles when he's writing to the church. Primarily, those are, are instruction. There's actually some story in there. Sometimes he'll tell you where he is or what he's doing, and so that's a little bit of story. 
but primarily in the New Testament, the epistles are our instruction for us. And so it's easier for us to say, well, the Bible says rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Hmm, wonder what I should do. Oh, okay, I should rejoice. Not too difficult, is it? But when we come to narrative portions of Scripture, we want to say, God, what's in this for me? How do I go about figuring out what you're saying to me while I'm reading the story of David or I'm reading the story of one of the other kings or different aspects in the life of God's Word? And so I've suggested to you two related, two related ways to approach narrative Scripture. The first is example. And particularly, we know that from 1 Corinthians chapter 10, which is what I've said before, and I know that I'm reviewing, I'm not so old that he said, does he not know that he said this before? Yes. But there are folks here for the first time, or folks visiting, and so welcome. And so in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, the Bible tells us that what happened to the children of Israel during the days of the Exodus are for our example, primarily for us not to follow. You learn lessons that way, don't you? You say, well, I've learned something from so-and-so. I've learned something from Buzz not to do that. <laughs> you know, we have those negative kinds of things. And here he says, uh, that's the kind of thing that's going on here and the instruction that we get from Paul's letter to the First Corinthians. The other aspect is, we believe, since it's God the Holy Spirit who's inspired every part of the Word of God, that God is writing, that God is writing His story. And that even in the narrative, really probably shouldn't use the word even, continuing in the narrative is God's redemptive plan. And so there's something in there that teaches us about God and what he's doing in the world. And we want to know that. We want to know that as a part of God's story, and we want to know that as a part of our story. And, and so if that is true, when we come to this place in, in chapters 5 and 6 primarily, I'm going to dodge back into chapter 4 a little bit. But in the life of the children of Israel, um, we, we started out by Moses being born, and, and then because of a killing an Egyptian, he fled there. He went off to the land of Midian, to the household of Jethro. He saw the burning bush. God called him out of the burning bush and said, I want you to go back and deliver my people. He had a few excuses, as you know, and God said, well, uh, let me tell you that I will be with you. And he said, well, that's, that's pretty good, but when the children of Israel ask, who has sent me? And I, I believe that that's his way of saying, by what authority do I come? These people only know me from the past. By what authority do I have? And he said, you tell them that I am has sent you. I am. I am who I am. I am who I was. I was who I am. I am who I will be. The eternal existing one has sent you. So then in chapter 4, he goes back. But he's still a little concerned. You see this over and over again in the life of Moses. Uh, a little in, in trepidation all the way through the journey. So he says, well, you know, I, I still don't think they're going to listen to me. And so God gives Moses a few signs. But now don't jump ahead too far into the story. These are not the, the plagues as we call them to the Egyptians. These are signs that he's supposed to say or perform in front of the Israelites. And so he says, what's that in your hand? And the rod, he throws it down. 
Uh, okay, well, that's a pretty good. Oh, I, what I want you to do, I want you to take your hand, put it inside here. When it comes out, ooh, it's leprous. Put it back in, comes back out clean. All right. Now, if they don't listen to those two, what I want you to do is go down and get some water out of the Nile and come and pour it out in front of them. And when you pour it out in front of them, it will be blood. And the Bible tells us that Moses went back and um, he and Aaron went back and performed all of these things in the sight of Israel. If you take up the story with me, would you, at chapter 4, and we can pick it up in about verse 30. It's a little early, but that's okay. And Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. So there they did it. Now look what happened. And the people believed, and when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel, that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. Bowed their heads and worshipped. And at that point I'm saying, yeah. At that point I'm saying, praise God. At that point, for all intents and purposes, it looks like victory. They've gone back. He's done what he said to do. He's spoken. They performed the signs, and Israel believed them. And they bowed and they worshiped. Wow, that's spectacular. Next word in the text. Afterwards. Afterwards. I tell you, I don't know. Every now and then again in the Bible, there's these great things, and then I see a word like nevertheless. Or I see a word like however. Or I see a word just as simple as but. And it like just strikes right at the heart. It's like I can feel it coming. Oh, it's coming. Afterwards. Afterwards begins chapter 5. Take a look at it with me, would you please? Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Oh, right out of the gate. It looks like, hey, this thing is going to work. These people are listening. We're all together. He, Aaron, the elders go to him. They speak, and they're going to hear, okay, let him go. And he doesn't say that. He doesn't say that at all. And down they come, probably into great despair and disappointment. Maybe, maybe, maybe not. As I look into this text and I first ask, what is the example for us? I want us to see some things about this topic of disappointment. And hopefully, you'll be different. Some of you need to be different than you've spoken in my ears. I need to be different. Well, what do I mean by that? Sometimes we express things that are just not consistent with the Word of God. And so that, I hope, perks your ears to go through this narrative portion of Scripture and, and actually pick out some things. Some things that are good, 
Some things that are not so good that we should learn, as I've already said from 1 Corinthians chapter 10, things that we should not do. You see, the journey from this verse, they bowed and worshipped. See that? I'm, I'm going to cheat just a little bit, and I'm going to go all the way over uh, to chapter 6. To chapter 6. And I'm going to look at the end of chapter 6. And this is what the end of chapter 6, verse 28 and following. And on that day when the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, the Lord said to Moses, I am the Lord. Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, that I say to you. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, I am uncircumcised in lips. How will Pharaoh listen to me? You see, what I want you to see is the journey. What we started out with here at the end of chapter 5 is bowing down and worshiping. By the time we get to end of chapter 6, it's, I don't know, God. I'm not too sure this thing's going to work. Wow. You ever been that way? Wow. If you've been a Christian for about 15 minutes, it's happened. Yeah, right. You know. Um, each week, I have to turn in kind of a title and a text uh, for our wonderful staff who put it in your bulletin. So each week, they've got the whole bulletin finished. And uh, it's usually about Thursday, hopefully Thursday morning. At least I can come up with a title. You've noticed through the years that those titles change, don't you? Because God does something from Thursday to Sunday and things change. I try not to. In particular, this week I tried not to. and uh, But I turned it in. Um, Disappointment stinks, Exodus 5 and 6. Just read that, and so we, we stayed with that. Little did I know that by Thursday afternoon, God would say, here's a good example for you. And that good example came in our latest candidate for lead pastor of our church. We had been moving through the ranks and uh, very impressed and praying and doing our due diligence and studying all written materials, doing all personal interviews, doing visits, doing all kinds of things. And then God said to the other church where our candidate was serving, I'm not finished with him here yet. I want him to stay here. We actually believe that and we're in agreement. The things that are going on in that other church, we're in agreement. It didn't cause us pain to say that. Why? Because we're not the only church on the planet, folks. God has a living, growing, gospel-driven, biblically-centered church all over the place. And the best we can identify, this man came from that such kind of a place. And so God said, I'm not finished with him yet. And that put us back at square one. Oh. A little bit, but not a lot. And I hope that you'll see some of those illustrations of why not a lot as we progress on through here especially maybe in the very, very first point that you have here on your screens. And if you're taking notes, you can see it. What about disappointment? How are we going to deal with this as we move forward? Well, first of all, I would say uh, that a good way to handle, to deal with disappointment is to recognize it's coming. It's not if, it's when, isn't it? It really is. In fact, the Bible testifies to that. You know, a few minutes ago, when I read through these first two verses of chapter 5, and I said, oh, look at Moses. Boy, he's probably in great despair. 
And then, you know, if you were paying attention, you heard me say, maybe. Now, if we go back to chapter 4, if we go back to chapter 4 and look at verse 21 and following. Okay? You all right today? You look a little, you look a little tired. Sun getting to you? Okay. Come on now. For chapter 4, verse 21. And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Do you see why I said maybe not? Now we need to read through all of the narrative of chapter 5, but the fact of the matter is, God told Moses trouble was coming. Wasn't going to just be a piece of cake. There were going to be some potholes in the road. And one of the biggest is, I'm going to tell you, in some sense, I like to say it of Isaiah as well and some of the other prophets, you've got a ministry to fail. How about that Jeremiah fella? Huh? Go out and speak to these people, but they're not going to listen to you. They're not going to understand. Said the same thing to Isaiah. Seeing they will not see and hearing they will not understand. I'm telling you that in advance. Wow. Which one of us is going to sign up for that? Whoa. Dare I leave preaching and going to meddling? Which one of you is going to sign up for it when it happens? What, what, what do you mean? What do you mean? Well, when it doesn't go right. When, it does, when, when the numbers aren't pouring in or, or the, the offering is not as big as it should be. Churches are just like, like, like sharks in the water sometimes in some places. A little bit of blood and boy, go after it and attack. Well, we love to just seize on the negative. Moses, the Bible says actually, and, and, and people jump on this, so I'm actually pushing back on a lot of preaching that I've heard. You see, read, read the text just a little bit further with me. So, so we're, we're there in verse 1. Thus says the Lord, let my people go. They may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. That's verse 1 of 5. Now verse 2. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover I will not let Israel go. Then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go three days' journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. And I think to myself, I say, wow. There, there. And I say, wait a minute. Maybe Moses, at least at this point, is not expressing great despair. Maybe he's not expressing disappointment. The truth is, if I were to go back even into chapter 3, all the way back into chapter 3, I'm going to find out that God has already announced what's going to happen in chapter 3. And moreover, when we read in chapter 4 of what he's going to do, actually Moses does exactly what God tells him to do. Now there are preachers who see in Moses' response here that he's wavering in his duty. I don't see that right off. I don't see it as glaringly as some preachers do. The fact is, I see Moses actually initially responding, okay, wait a minute, God told me it was going to happen. Didn't say if, but when, 
That happens. And so he responds in the way that God says for him to respond. I, I put some notes in, in there of, of different verses. We all have heard the Lord Jesus in the high priestly prayer, or that is the, high, uh, the, the upper room discourse in John chapter 16 and verse 33, that he's, he said, now these things that I've been telling you, Jesus says it, the things that I've been teaching you during my ministry, I've been teaching so that you will have peace. Well, that's great. Even Paul says that, that peace that does what? We all know it. That passes, well, that's what we're looking for. That's what many of the popular preaching is going on today. And then what's the very next thing that Jesus says to them? Because in the world you will have trouble. You will have trouble. I quickly turn in my Bible over to the first chapter of James looking at verse 2, James chapter 1, excuse me, verse 2. Count it all joy, my brethren, if you meet trials in various, of various kinds. Do you know your Bible? Is that what it says? Count it all joy, my brothers, if... No. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete and lacking in nothing. It's not if, it's when. And you see, if you really lay hold of that, that's going to help you when it happens. You know what? God told me that was going to happen. You can be Moses. God told me that was going to happen. Number two, I want to press on as quickly as possible. First of all, it's not if, but when, so be prepared for it. And then secondly, consider the source. It helps me to consider the source. When negativism comes, when challenge comes to you in your life, you've heard it before. Well, what you need to do is consider the source. Now, in this particular case, where is the disappointment coming from? Be careful. Because we live our lives as if the disappointment came from Pharaoh, don't we? Not like this. We do. That boss said that. That girlfriend said that. That co-worker said that. And that's where that disappointment came from. That's our, that's our pull, the, pull the six shooter in our brains. I, I don't mean shoot ourselves in brains. <laughs> Sorry about that. You know, I, that's where our initial knee-jerk reaction is. The circumstances that have hit me, that's the source of my problem. That's the source of my disappointment. It is. It's our, it's our go-to. It's a computer language for default. It is our spiritual default. But I would challenge you, consider, consider the source. We've already taken a look at the fact that God has already, at least twice, clearly told Moses that this is what is going to happen. Pharaoh is not in charge. But it appears that maybe, maybe Moses is wavering. Take a look a little bit further. Now, go back to verse 3. I just see it. I, I see it kind of, stay with me. I see it kind of like I see the words of Eve in the garden, you know. Uh, can you not eat of any of the trees? Oh, we can eat of all the trees. We can't eat of that one. And what? And neither can we touch it. Kind of a little, little addition onto God. Take a look. In similar fashion, a little something subtle going on here in verse 3. Then, then they said, the God of Hebrews has met with us. 
Please let us go three days' journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice of our God. Oh, Moses, you're just coming out of the gate, buddy. You're just standing in front of the king who could just snuff you out in a second. And you're saying, the, the God of Israel, the God of the Hebrews, he has said this. And then he just slips this in there. Then he just slips, slips this in there. Lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. Now, I could be reading too much into this. So you just back away, scratch it out, whatever. But it's like Moses is just stalwart. He's standing there so strong. And then as if to be somewhat passive-aggressive. You know what that means? To kind of say, hey, you know, it's not my fault, you know. Uh, you know, but if we don't do this, I mean, you know, God's going to wipe it. God's not going to punish you, which is not what God said. But he's going to punish us. So, hey, can you have a, little, have a little pity on us? You know, I really appreciate if you do this, because if you don't do this, God's going to wipe us out. And I, 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 see, I see Moses' knees shaking just a bit. Uh, who's, the, who's the one who's dealt with more disappointment and challenge than anybody else in the Bible? Huh? Everybody knows that. It's trivia. If you go on Jeopardy, it's like, you know, who was hit hardest, Right? You ever noticed on Jeopardy when there's a Bible column that they always choose it last? You know, almost every time. You know, they can do science fiction, they can do physics, they'll do chemistry, but they won't touch that Bible. Okay, sorry. So, so I'm I'm, I'm here in Job just a little bit. Huh. Wow. Here's what Job's 40 verse 1 says, and the Lord said to Job. Okay, now God's speaking to Job. Shall a fault finder contend the Almighty, he who argues with God, let him answer it. Now it's God who's speaking to Job. So when he says, shall a fault finder contend, who's the fault finder? It's Job. So God is asking Job a question. Shall the fault finder contend with the Almighty? Then Job promises silence. Then Job answered the Lord and he said, behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once, and I will not answer. Twice, but I will proceed no further. You know what Job said? Shut my mouth. And then the Lord challenges Job. I love this line. I love this line. Listen, I'm talking about disappointment. And if you're trying to get something out of the example of Moses, listen to these words. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind, and he said, I love this. Have I already said I love this? That should prick your ears up. I love this. Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me? You may be in the right? Question mark. I mean, God says, Mr. Job, attention. Put on your big boy pants. I'm about to come at you. And by the time he's finished coming at him, so to speak, and I go all the way to the end of the book, 
I know that you can do all things, Job says, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Hear, and I will speak. I will question you, and you make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. The end, Job sees. My ears heard something before, but now I lay hold of it. I lay hold of it. He recognizes that the source of what has happened to him all through this book is not some storm that fell on the kid's house. It's not some disease that broke out on him. It's not the belittling and badgering of these three fens all through these 40-some chapters. God all the time in his life. Consider the source. Consider the source. I must press on. Number three, the, stir the circumstances, I say, can get worse. And this is kind of what I meant when I said, okay, we're going to look at some of these things, and I hope you see some things you haven't seen before and that it changes. You remember that little thing back there? This is kind of, I pretty much haven't said anything that you didn't know already, right? Probably true. But take a look as we continue on, on through this text that's going on. After verse 3, he's confronting him, and, and I'm not going to read through it. You probably know the story, but the Pharaoh says, you know what I know your problem is? You're lazy. The reason you're coming and asking me, can you go into the wilderness and, and sacrifice, is not really you've got something else going on. You're idle. You're lazy. You're idle people. And I'm not going to let you go. Furthermore, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to tell the taskmasters that you are going to continue to make bricks. You're going to continue to meet the same quota that I have told you before. Yet, I am not going to give you all the materials you need to make those bricks. I'm going to take the straw away from you. I'm not going to provide the straw. I'm going to make you go out and collect the straw wherever you can find it. But don't you, let, don't you fall behind in one brick per day. And... and and in, in this story, Israel has foremen who are Hebrews. Israel has foremen. Not all of their bosses are Egyptians. Some of their bosses, some of their foremen are Hebrews. And the Hebrews go into Pharaoh and say, Pharaoh, come on, man. Buzz paraphrase. Okay. But the problem that's going on here is not us. It, it, it's you. You're the one that's making the problem for why we're not producing as many bricks. And, of course, Pharaoh, he said, well, yeah, I guess you're right. No. Pharaoh says, you're a bunch of lazy bums. And he beat the Israelite, the Hebrew foreman. He beat them. And they're crying out, why are you treating us like this? On through this chapter 5. Make bricks, make bricks. And verse 18 of chapter 5, go now and work. No straw will be given you, 
but you must still deliver the same number of bricks. Verse 19, the foremen of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble when they said, you shall... This is funny, one of these, one of these quirky little funny lines for me. I don't know, call me weird. Verse 19, the foremen of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble when they said, you shall by no means reduce your number of bricks, your daily task each day. And I'm thinking, is that your first sign? You know, you're in captivity. You've been beaten. But I think maybe what's trying to be conveyed here is when he heard him say it again. In other words, they'd been beaten. They're coming back and pleading their case again for a second time. And for a second or third or even more time, Pharaoh is coming back and saying, this is the way it's going to be. And at that point, whoa. Could it get worse? Yes, it could get worse. It's going from bad to worse. It's going from a bad situation even to a, a worse situation. Wait a minute, Pastor. My Bible says that that's not what God will do. Now, that's not the kind of God that I know. Why, my God has promised that he'll never give me more than I can handle. If I hear that one more time out of context, I think I'm just going to cry. Does anybody know where that comes from? Do you know where that comes from? Over here in the New Testament in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Over here, over here. Where's, where's 1 Corinthians? Yeah, it's after Romans. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. It's in here. I keep switching from Romans to 2 Corinthians. But it's here. Look, look at this. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. That's where it comes from. If you always wondered where it comes from, this is where it comes from. And so it begins... No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. Okay? So the temptation that comes, everybody, it comes to everybody. God is faithful, and he will not let he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. And indeed, there is the answer of this particular. What does it mean when we say God will never give you anything that you, you can't handle? In, in the life of Moses, we just read it. I'm thinking things got harder. Things went from bad to worse. And, and not only that, the next verse says that even the Israelites turned against him. So now Moses on this side, excuse me, Pharaoh on this side is against him. And no sooner does he turn away from Pharaoh to walk out the door than the Israelites are right there. You're the guy that's causing all the trouble around here. You ever had that happen to you? You, you, ever, you ever been beat up by some circumstance only to turn around and look at what you thought was a friend and they say, well, I could have told you that was going to happen. Yeah, thanks a lot. You're the kind of friend I want. And these people came again. It went from bad to worse. But in, in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, you really need to think about it and pause for just a second. What are you saying when you say, God will never give me anything beyond what I can handle? If on the one hand you're saying to yourself, you know, I know I messed up. And because I messed up, this bad is happening to me. Didn't take the car in when I knew it needed tires. Now I got a flat tire and I'm out on the interstate. 
you know. But you know, God will never give me anything that I can't handle. Right? Great. Well, I got to leave the car there. Okay. Call somebody to come pick it up. Get a call from the truck. Truck says, listen, I'm in exit 42 and there's no car here. Somebody's stolen the car. It's gone from bad to worse now. It's gone. Oh, but you know what? Hey, God's not going to give me any more than I can handle. Here's what I, I, I want to really convey about this. And it is a soapbox, and when I use that, you know that I'm talking about things that kind of get into my craw. Because I hear this line most prominently in the prosperity gospel churches. I hear this saying, listen, let me tell you what God's going to do for you. Let me tell you what you can depend on God for. And there's all of these wonderful kinds of things at least. But when you look at them closely, they are things, those are human things that you can have in the here and the now. And that's not the gospel. It leaves out Jesus. It leaves out eternity. It leads, leaves out the consummation of your eternal joy. It leaves it out complete. It says, you know what it says? Look here. This is what it says. It says the same thing that Satan said to Jesus in Matthew chapter 4. You see, one of the temptations... Uh, Satan said to, Ma to, to Jesus in Matthew 4 was this and he put him up on the pinnacle of a hill and he looked out all over all the kingdoms of the world and Satan said to Jesus if you bow down I'll give you all of this if you bow down I'll give you all of this and that was a silly if not stupid ridiculous thing to say to the king of kings because guess what what he was actually saying was not, look out on all of this and I'll give it to you. Because the fact of the matter is, it was already Jesus's. It was already his. What Satan was saying to him is, I'll give it to you when? When? I'll give it to you before when? I'll give it to you before the cross. And if you read Acts 2, 22 and 23... The cross was God's plan. The cross was God's plan. But I'll give it to you in the here and now. You know what, you know what the prosperity gospel leaves out? It leaves out the cross of Jesus Christ. And it's an abomination. Oh, God will never give you any more than you. If that's what you mean, you are in the wrong place. On the other hand, if you are focused on eternal joy, then you're going to say, you're, you're, going to, you're going to say with the Apostle Paul uh, that I may know him in, in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering. I get to know Christ, not only the way God raised him from the dead, but I get to know Christ in the fellowship of his suffering. I, I'm not going to take the time because I'm, I'm probably running. I haven't looked at the clock yet. I should have, but I haven't. I like Acts. There's several places in Acts. One in the life of Paul further on down. One earlier on in the life of Peter and, and the apostles. They heal somebody and, uh, and 
and they get thrown into prison. They get they get thrown into prison. They come out and uh, and they're being chastised by the religious leaders of the day. We told you, we told you not to speak anymore in this name. And uh, and the reason I connect to this because the same word here in our text goes over to Acts. Can I digress? You here? Are you here? Are you? I'm going to digress. Okay, so Moses just spoke to Pharaoh. He turns around like this, and he's walking out the door, and there are the elders and the leaders of Israel, and, and they said, I'm not looking at the text right now, but they said this. They said, may God look on you and judge you for what you've done. They pronounced a curse on them. They pronounced a curse on them. May God look on you and judge you. It's your fault we're in this trouble. Now, the reason I do that, now fast forward back to Acts. You back? You back? And Peter, Peter looked at the religious leaders. We told you not to speak in his name. And Peter looked at those religious leaders and he said, I'll tell you what, you go ahead and judge. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead and judge us. It's fine. You judge whether we should obey you or whether we should obey God. Isn't that a great line? Woo. Makes a Baptist jump just a little bit. Right? You judge. Wow. God will never give you more than you can handle. Uh, you know, I've got another. There's two sermons in this, and I'm only partway through the first one. I'm going to look see what time it is. Okay, it's 20 minutes till. I'm going to pedal. Here we go. Number four, seek the Lord as your only hope. Seek the Lord as your only hope. In the midst of disappointment, where are you going to look? I tell you, God, the power of the Holy Spirit is saying, yield. Now, that's what's happening here in this, in this passage of Scripture. They met Moses, they, the Israelites, in verse 20, met Moses and Aaron who were waiting for them. They came out from Pharaoh and they said to them, the Lord look on you and judge because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh, his servants, and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Then Moses turned to the Lord. I mean, at least he's headed in the right direction. At least he's headed in the right direction. But he turned to the Lord. Oh, Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. Now that's actually where I got at least a part of the sermon. You say, Pastor, I don't even see the word disappoint in all of this text. I'm telling you, I see despair and I see disappointment right there. God, why have you done this? And yet, in the face of it, here's one of those situations where you do opposite of what you see in the text. You, you do what the psalmist says in 69. In Psalm 69, just listen to it. Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters and the floods sweep over me. I am weary with my crying out. My throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. More in number than the hairs of my head are those who hate me without cause. Mighty are those who would destroy me, those who attack me with lies. 
What I did not steal must I now restore? Oh God, you know my folly. The wrongs I have done are not hidden from you. Let not those who hope in you be put to shame through me. O oh Lord, God of hosts, let not those who seek you be brought to dishonor through me, O oh God of Israel. There's so much in that. That's a wonderful passage to preach. But he's just coming in great despair, and he's saying, Oh, why is this? I'm down deep in the mire. And furthermore, he goes so far as to say, listen, I'm not perfect. I'm not innocent in this matter. God, you know the faults that I have committed. And he's just crying out completely to God. Let not, I love this part, let not those who hope in you be put to shame. Now, I read through it fast, but think about what that's saying. You see? And I want you to get this about a disappointment. Because you have an opportunity. The gospel is on display in your life in the midst of real disappointment. Uh, oh, Pastor, I didn't get that. Do that again? Okay, we'll read the text. Let not those who hope in you, who hopes in him today, Christians hope in him. Yes? No, I'd like this. I promise I'm going to finish on time. Okay? Yeah. Let not those who hope. Yeah, okay, that must be Christians today. Let them not be put to shame. How would they be put to shame? They would be put to shame when they watch you in your disappointment. When they watch you in your disappointment, and you're like, oh. I guess we're going to have to go borrow money. Oh, man, I guess we're going to have to go back and live with our parents. Oh, oh, man. I haven't got the money. To, I, what are they seeing? What are they seeing? They're not seeing you hope in the Lord alone. And number five, when you're in the midst of that incredible disappointment, what should you do? I'll tell you what you should do. Watch this. Here's what you should do. You ready? You may not know everything to do. I'm not suggesting that you and I have not been in real, serious pits of disappointment and despair. Don't hear me preaching a sermon, oh, be warm and fed and go on your way. It's not what I'm doing. It's not what's happening here. I'm talking about people who have a little girl in the hospital who may not live. I'm talking about people who are starting chemotherapy this week, and it's scary. I'm talking about people who for their lifetime have dealt with disease. I'm talking about people who are praying for their husband, for their wife, for their child. I'm talking about people who are down seriously right there. And we don't have all the answers. We don't. Don't go to a preacher who says he's got all the answers. But just because we don't have all the answers doesn't mean we don't have some. And one of those is to do what you know to do by grace through faith. One of those things you know. I, I'm, not, I'm not talking about this. I mean, I just about like that. Maybe. Don't you love 2 Corinthians 8 9? I know. I've, I'm telling you, I got a half more sermon. 
I don't know what I'm going to do about it right now, but I'm going to 2 Corinthians. Is it 8, 9, or 9, 8? Where is it? Somebody shout it out. It's 9, 8, isn't it? I think that it is. Where's chapter 9? There's, 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 there's verse 8. Oh. If, you've never, if you haven't memorized something in a while, memorize it. Here we go. And God is able to make all grace abound in you. God is able to make all grace abound. Say it again. God, you don't even have to memorize. Oh, the rest of it's very good. But right now you can memorize just the first part of it. And God is able to make all grace abound in you. And God is able to make all grace abound in you. And God is able. He's not Elijah and the prophets of Baal. He hasn't taken a vacation. He hasn't stepped aside. God will never leave you or forsake you is the truth of the promise. And God is able to make all grace abound in you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work as it is written. God, you know something. You don't know much. You're sweating worse than a preacher who's running out of time. You say, oh God, give me that grace for just this one. God, by faith, I take this. And that's eternity. That's the way you walk into eternity. Well, I've already been silly. I'm putting the notes away from here. That was all the example. I do want to at least leave you with the picture of the redemptive gospel. It may not be something that you see in this text. I didn't see it until I was studying it. I'd like to go back to chapter 5 very quickly as I close. I love it, though. I'm going to live on it for a while. So I'm back at chapter 5 in, in verse 20. They, that is the Israelites, the leaders, met Moses and Aaron who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh. And they said to them, so now this is the Israelites speaking to Moses and Aaron. The Lord look on you and judge, because you have made us stink. Disappointment stinks, doesn't it? You have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh. Now, you, 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 there's people watching video. They're sitting there in front of their Bible software programs, and they're they're looking up things, and they're going to scrutinize the theology of what I'm saying. So I'm going to tell you right now, out in front, that I'm going to connect two things that I don't think exegetically connect, but they theologically connect. What does that mean? That means that I don't think that this passage of Scripture is talking about this passage of Scripture over here in the New Testament that I'm going to cite. I don't think the two are talking about one another, but theologically dead on target. Here, here's what I mean by this. Now, stay with me on this because this is really, I think, huge. You made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh. What would Peter and John in the book of Acts said if they were accused of, 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 of stinking in front of the Pharisee and religious leaders? Well, I'll tell you what they did say. The Bible says that they went away praising God that they were able to suffer for Him. That's what they did. That's what they... 
why Moses and Aaron, you made us stink in front of Pharaoh. I could only wish that I was in that spot and I were to say, thanks, man. Really appreciate that. Wow. I like it. I mean, that's great. I, they're looking at me like I got a third eye. Did you not hear what we just said? You made us stink. And from he's going to be even harder on us because of you. And so I do turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. I don't even know what verse is. Somebody help me out. Verse 14, is it? 2 Corinthians 14. Oh, there it is. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads, here it is, spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of Him everywhere. For we are an aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance of life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? We stink. We stink. Okay, I know that's the negative side of the word. I love the word in, in, in Hebrew. In Hebrew, it's bosh. Bosh. It's used about 18 times in the Old Testament, and almost every time, a couple of times not, but almost every sometimes it's used, sometimes it's used just smell, like the like the like the fish that smell when they died, or the frogs when they died, and the plagues coming up, they stank. But most of the time, it's it's the relationship has been broken between a person and another person or between peoples of a nation and a person you've made us stink in front of them you've made us stink almost as an odious where is the redemptive part of this story I just like that nugget and I'm giving it to you you see what I mean by ten sermons in, in one passage I realize that. What are you going to do in the times of disappointment? You take a look at these things in the time of great disappointment. But I hope you stink. I hope you stink. I hope you smell with the aroma and the fragrance of Christ so that other people... That guy's a little in the head, isn't he? He is weird. You see all the stuff that's happening to him, and yet he rejoices and he praises God so that Christ would not be put to shame in front of him. Lord, I pray that you would take something of this. God, that in the midst of challenges in our lives, in the midst of disappointment, that in the right sense we would smell, that we would stink, that we would give off the aroma of Christ, and that you would be glorified, that we would be a different people. I pray this week for these people in the sound of my voice, that when they're at work and it doesn't go that right way, when we're in the family issues that we're in, when we're in the hospital and illness situations, God, would you bring a word back that you are in control. Pharaoh is not in control. 
You are in control, and we will indeed turn to you, and we will obey in rejoicing by faith, by your grace, in what we know to be true, your promises we lay hold of, because you have made a promise, and you keep all of your promises. And Lord, we will lean on this so that in that moment we give off an aroma of Christ. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Pastor Church. Would you stand with me, please?